Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Cansu Çamlıbel. We are coming to you from Istanbul after a little break of a few weeks in August. We can say that we managed to take a few weeks off to gear up for the upcoming tough winter. However, as most of you follow, Turkey's domestic agenda refused to take a break this summer. July and August uh, have been hectic, both in terms of heated political debates domestically and also in terms of Turkey's relationship with neighboring Greece. Tensions in the East Med and Aegean are high as we speak. I'm sure careful Turkey watchers among our audience are already aware of this situation. Hopefully we'll have episodes in the next weeks to focus on the possible short-term and long-term consequences of this standoff between Ankara and Greece. But today We will talk about another important file in Turkey's foreign policy portfolio, which has been forgotten in the last few months, Syria. Certainly, you might say that Syrian refugees have been one of the key elements of European Union's and Greece's stance on Turkey in the last decade. But what we will discuss today with my guest is beyond diplomatic tit-for-tats between third countries. Before I forgot, a co-host of Zeitgeist Turkey, Can Selçuk'i, could not join us today due to some personal undertakings, but he has sent his best wishes to our guest and to our audience. He will be back next week. And yes, my guest today is Wendy Perlman. She is joining me from Chicago in the United States. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you on Zeitgeist Turkey. Please allow me to introduce you a little bit to our audience. You are a professor and award-winning teacher at Northwestern University, and you specialize in Middle East politics. You studied at Harvard, Georgetown, and Brown. You are fluent in Arabic. You have spent more than 20 years of studying and living in Arab countries. This is, of course, a very quizzed and short, brief version of your resume, which is very impressive. Could you tell us the countries that you lived in the Arab world? Yeah, I began studying the Arab world during a university semester abroad when I was in college in Morocco. I returned to Morocco many times in the late 1990s. Then I moved eastward. I studied for about a semester at Birzeit University in the West Bank, which was my first trip to Palestine. I then ended up writing my PhD dissertation on Palestinian politics. So I spent many more months over the years in both the West West Bank and the Gaza Strip. I lived in Egypt for a year where I studied Arabic at the American University in Cairo. I spent two long summers in Lebanon doing another project on Lebanese out-migration. And then when I began studying the Syrian uprising in 
Syrian conflict. Starting in 2012, I made many, many trips to do interviews with Syrians, starting in Jordan, then moving on to Lebanon. And then I also made many trips um, from 2013 through 2018 to Turkey in Istanbul, Gaziantep, Hatay province, and other places to do interviews with Syrian refugees there. The primary reason that I'm hosting you today is the publication of one of your books in Turkish. We are talking about your third book, if I'm not mistaken, and the English title of the book is We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. This book was published in the US in 2017, right? Yes. And now we have the book in Turkish. And the Turkish title, I'm going to save you from trouble here, is <laughs> I highly recommend it for the Turkish readers. You talk to so many people in Turkey, living in Turkey. And when I say people, of course, Syrians who fled their countries because of the civil war since 2011 and 12. We're talking about the Syrians in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, and as you mentioned, in UAE, some Western countries as well. So how did you decide to come up with such a book? Well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. As you mentioned, I'm a professor of Middle East politics. My interest for a long time has actually been on social movements, social mobilization, protest politics. It was in that context that I wrote my PhD on Palestinian politics with a focus on protest. So when the Arab Spring began in 2011, all specialists in the Middle East, but probably all people on the planet, I was just captivated by these shows of people power, of people going out into the streets to demand dignity, freedom, better government. And I was especially captivated when protests began in Syria. At that time, many said, you know, Syria is a kingdom of silence. People are too afraid by a history of state violence. The regime is too oppressive. Syrians are simply too afraid to go out, risk their lives and their well-being to go out and, and say no and demand change. So when Syrians defied those expectations and also began to protest, I really wanted to know how and why. And I especially wanted to know about the human experience of protesting, what it felt like to go and protest for the first time, how people mustered the courage to break the barrier of fear and so forth. And I decided that there was no better way to find out what it was like to protest than to go and talk to Syrians themselves and collect their stories about this tremendously special and historic moment in time. I watched the Syrian uprising from afar throughout the year 2011. My first chance to go and travel and do these interviews was 2012, the summer. And by that time, it was already quite dangerous, Syria. And I personally was too afraid to go inside Syria and have frank conversations about politics and protests from within Syria. So I began to interview Syrians who had fled the country as refugees. And I made my first trip to Jordan and started with one contact and basically talked to every Syrian refugee I could. You know, one person connected me to another, to another, and the interviews were very open. I got permission to put down a tape recorder and just invited people to talk about anything. And they talked about protest, but they also talked about the context of protest. They told me about what lives were like in authoritarian Syria about the fear, the silence, the corruption, the threat of violence. These personal stories at a very human level gave me so much insight into what Syria is like, what it was like, why this uprising began. And I got hooked. 
And the next summer, I went back to Jordan to do more interviews. And then I also moved on to Turkey. As most Syrians fled from the borders closest to their homes, it was important to go to different countries to talk to Syrians uh, from different hometowns in Syria. So I moved on to Turkey and spent a good month and a half or so there. And then over the years, I continued. I did interviews in Lebanon. As the large wave of Syrian refugees moved on to Europe, I also did interviews in Germany and Sweden and Denmark, eventually some in Norway. And I collected and collected stories about protest and then every phase of the Syrian uprising and conflict as it evolved about how protest militarized and became an armed rebellion, how that rebellion became a war, the experience of civilians living war, and eventually how and why people came to flee as refugees and their new lives as refugees. For me, although as a journalist, I um, I I try to follow what happens in Syria and in Turkey vis-a-vis Syrians uh, on a daily basis. Your book uh, helped me to remember the human face of the situation, the human face of the war. If not more, in the last five years, we started talking about Syria in terms of these armed conflicts between different fragments in Syria and also between third countries of the world. So the book is a reminder that the whole thing started with people's demands, people's demands for a better country for themselves and for their kids. What I've collected from people's stories, this is what I've learned of perspectives of the people I've been able to talk to, brings to light a few different dynamics. One is how organic and grassroots and spontaneous and unplanned the shift towards armed protest was that there wasn't some master plan of somebody said, now we're going to make a rebel group, that people went out in peaceful protests and across the board, everyone I spoke to said, we never wanted this to be a war. We never wanted it to be an armed rebellion. We believed in the power of people and going out into the streets. And also very interestingly, many people said, In the beginning, we were not even calling for the overthrow of the Assad regime. We were simply calling for reform. People said that they wanted, for example, the withdrawal of the emergency law that has existed in Syria since the 1960s that allows security forces to arrest anyone and hold them without charge or trial or throw them into jail or confiscate businesses and so forth. They wanted the dismissal of some particularly corrupt governors. They wanted change, but they weren't even calling for the overthrow of the regime. And people went out peacefully with the most simple slogans for dignity and freedom. They went out with chants and with dances and with flowers and with water bottles and signs and songs. And they were met by the most brutal of violence. They were met by with bullets, house raids. First, when people began to take up weapons, it was in a sense of self-defense. They were being brutalized and pounded by the regime that resolved to crush this rebellion with force. And people first took up arms, not because they wanted to, but out of self-defense. Some said that people first took up arms in order to protect the demonstrations, that the uprising needed mass protests of people on the streets. And in order for that to happen, people took up arms. They went to the outskirts of town to try to deter and thwart security forces from reaching the protests and to be able to warn the protesters that the security forces were coming. So many young men who were serving in the army, their loyalties and their support 
support was with the protesters. Those on the streets were their cousins and their brothers and their neighbors and would have been them had they not been doing their military service. And people began to defect from the army in order to not be complicit and be a part of oppressing and using violence against protesters and to go over to the other side. And many of those military defectors took their weapons with them. They were trained soldiers of the state. They defected as soldiers and they gradually began to form what they thought as an alternative to the Syrian army, a Syrian army that represented the Syrian people, what became known as the Free Syrian Army that declared its formation in summer 2011. So the beginnings of armaments was very organic, very grassroots, and an impulsive reaction to violence. And here I can put on my hat as a political scientist for a second to say that this is a dynamic that is very well known over time and space, across cases, across history, when peaceful protest is met with violent repression, that nonviolent protest often becomes violent protest. The unfortunate thing for the Syrian uprising and the, the struggle for Syrian freedom is that the Free Syrian Army evolved in a way in which it was not able to match the advantages of the Syrian army, in which it became increasingly fragmented and ultimately wasn't victorious. And here again, there are various reasons. One, of course, the Free Syrian Army was outarmed and outnumbered and outmaneuvered from the very beginning by the Syrian army. Secondly, the Syrian regime under Bashar al-Assad met with concerted, powerful, consistent support from its international allies, from Iran, from Russia, from Hezbollah, and so forth, that supported the regime economically, militarily, politically, and stepped in to make sure that regime did not fall. The supporters of the Free Syrian Army, on the other hand, were not as consistent, were often competing against each other, using their support for this Free Syrian Army as a way to compete with each other for their own interests, their own aims, their own advantage. So some support from the Free Syrian Army came from Turkey, some from Saudi Arabia and other governments, some from individuals, some from wealthy Syrians. Each foreign patron might support a battalion of just a small group of guys and give them money and give them weapons and expect loyalty in return. So the Free Syrian Army was never an army in the conventional sense of the word. Some people like to say the Free Syrian Army was always a slogan. It was a banner. It was an idea that anybody who held up the green revolutionary flag, took up arms and called themselves FSA, were FSA. It never had command and control. It never had clear organization. You had lots of different groups beholden to different patrons who called the shots. And in that kind of a context, you can absolutely not win against a unified, conventional, powerful, backed army like the Assad regime. During this fragmentation of the opposition, something else happened. The Kurds found their voice in Syria mm-hmm. after so many decades. Of course, the Sunni populations in Syria under the Ba'as rule suffered as well. But mm-hmm. the Kurds suffered like no one else because they were not even regarded as citizens. They did not have ID cards. And you have spoken to some people who come from those families and they told you about their own stories. Although their stories were different in the past, in the present, in the contemporary times, they became part of the same war 
which has been manipulated by the international powers. So if the Russians and the Iranians, as you mentioned, stood behind the regime, the Americans stood behind the Kurds. So inevitably they become part of this international conflict. This is very unfortunate that the international powers intervened in such a militaristic way that the Syrian populations found themselves at odds with each other. No, for sure. And there, when you said the Americans stood behind the Kurds, I might say that the Americans stood behind the Kurds until they didn't, or they or they used That's the Kurds as yeah, as exactly. convenient. Um, they used the Kurds as 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 useful for their their own struggle. And of course, uh, the, the U.S. most prominently becoming militarily involved, targeting only ISIS and not the Assad regime, and and and, and partnering or and or using Kurds as their ground forces in that struggle after 2014. There's a, um, a a truly tragic tale, I think, to be told about the international community's relationship to the Syrian conflict and its involvement in ways that made things worse and its non-involvement in ways that could have made things better. So one thing that comes through so strongly in the book is many ordinary Syrians' expectation and trust that if they went out and protested peacefully and called for democracy, which are, you know, purportedly the values that the West upholds and called for human rights, that the international community would not abandon them if their own regime began to to slaughter them. And people went out with that kind of faith in democracy and human rights and international norms and the idea of responsibility to protect and civilian protection. When the regime started killing them, they uh, were abandoned. The international community responded with lots of words, but didn't come in with meaningful ways to protect civilians. In the beginning, Turkey voiced its support for the Syrian uprising, called for Bashar al-Assad to step down, and then over time shifted its priorities, the Turkish government that is, from supporting the uprising against Bashar al-Assad against authoritarianism to being more worried about Kurdish autonomy and any sort of Kurdish self-government on its borders and shifting its priorities to prevent that Kurdish self-government zones in Syria on the Turkish border. The international community did not take actions it could have and should have to protect civilians, to hold the Assad regime accountable, to put meaningful pressure on the Assad regime so it would be forced to negotiate a meaningful political transition that's what the international community could have done good and instead arguably made things worse by getting involved militarily, by arming this or that party, by making this conflict a more complicated multidimensional war. And of course, I think the biggest blame here is with the supporters of the Assad regime that absolutely enabled that regime survival. The Assad regime would have collapsed were it not for the support it received from Russia, Iran and other parties. Absolutely. To me, one key element of what you call very sad tale is this revolution. The attempt of a revolution in Syria is failing. We Can we really talk about a revolution in the Syrian context? As a political scientist, how would you define the concept of revolution in the Syrian um, framework? 
Oh, it's such an important question and heart-wrenching question. And I think it's a question that many supporters of the Syrian uprising have been asking themselves for many years. My own sense is that the understanding of revolution might evolve over time and take different forms over time. And the Syrian struggle for freedom is turning out to be a much longer term struggle than Syrians ever anticipated. And there are different spaces in which that struggle can unfold. It is clear that the military battle is increasingly being won by the Assad regime. The Assad regime has reconquered swaths of territory that slipped from its control and slipped into rebel control over the years. With the most brutal means, it has won back that territory, is consolidating its power again. At the same time, the country is an absolute disaster. And not only the material destruction of the war, but economically, there is a huge economic crisis. There's now a huge COVID crisis. So many ask and say, has the Assad regime won the war? Can it win the peace? Can it govern? Institutionally, it is absolutely dependent upon external powers. And it is a very weak sort of shadow of its oneself with rampant corruption and transforming the ways it governs because it's no longer the strong state it, it once was. And meanwhile, for those who supported the revolution, I think many recognize that this phase, the phase that began earlier in the decade, has passed, that there is no longer a military struggle to be won on the ground, that many of the beautiful experiments of self-government and participatory democracy that began in some liberated areas have been crushed brutally. And now Syrians have to think about how to sustain the struggle in different ways. I think many are thinking that there's now a very large Syrian diaspora, some seven, eight million Syrians outside the country, some in countries like Turkey or in other countries on Syria's borders, over a million Syrians in Europe, hundreds of thousands in other countries scattered across the world. Can they come together? Can they form new, powerful, representative bodies to speak to the international community, to organize themselves democratically, to show that there is an alternative Syria in the future? Can a new generation of Syrian children, even those who are born and raised in exile, hold on to the dream of a free Syria? Of course, there are still other realms of activism, Syrians who are working in the realm of transitional justice, who've accumulated a huge amount of evidence of war crimes, crimes against humanity and atrocities committed by the Assad regime and are now beginning to have trials and arrests of regime officials to show that there is not impunity and some will pay a price for the crimes that they oversaw and committed. So as long as these Syrians all over the world are saying no, continue to say no, continue to work so that other countries do not allow reconstruction in Syria to be a space or mechanism with which the regime accumulates funds, re-legitimizes itself, becomes accepted as a legitimate partner in the international community. These are all ways in which people continue to resist, continue to say no. And that, I think, is what the Syrian revolution might mean today. I don't think it's over. I don't think it has failed. I think it is evolving into a new phase. Revolutions sometimes take a long time and evolve and take different forms. But as long as people refuse to give up, it's not over yet. It's interesting. It's uplifting as well <laughs> to hear that revolutions might eventually become successful in different forms in our age. But listening to you, 
what strikes me is the fact that this large group of Syrians living abroad now in the form of diaspora will likely refuse any kind of compromise that might be found between the international players and the Syrian regime. When we look at the UN process, at least an important portion of the regime will be there, we understand, from those negotiations. From your conversations with the Syrians, with the real people, are you saying that that kind of a formula where, although institutionally weak, after years of fighting, but still elements of Syrian regime staying in a possible future Syria will not be accepted by many in diaspora. Is that your feeling? I would say not necessarily, that many people I've, I've talked to accept that there might need to be some sort of political transition and negotiated compromise, that this is a conflict that should not only be won on the battlefield. If it's won on the battlefield and the stronger Assad army imposes its victory, that there should be a political transition that requires some sort of compromise. Most people I talk to look at these various negotiation processes, whether in Geneva or in Astana, and feel that the Assad regime is not negotiating in good faith. It is not willing to compromise. It's using these forums as window dressing to look like it is negotiating, but it really is not willing to engage in any serious talks about any type of transition, any type of power sharing, any type of accountability. So I don't think that a negotiated transition is impossible, but it requires there to be real meaningful pressure on the Assad regime to make some concession. Maybe that means Bashar al-Assad steps down, but other regime officials stay or some other types of formula. One thing to mention is that the people I talk to, even if they are fiercely opposed to Bashar al-Assad, are also realists. And many also still have family inside Syria and loved ones inside Syria. They don't want their families to suffer. They don't want their families to starve economically. They don't want their families to be in harm's way. They love their country. They don't want it to see more destruction. So they're not necessarily absolutists who think that this war should go on indefinitely and have more and more people die and, and suffer. They want to bring the suffering to an end. Their own families are paying the consequences as well, but they don't want it to have had no political outcome to after all of this killing and destruction, the Assad regime rules with zero accountability, with zero checks on its power, with all of the corruption and abuse that it always has. So there can be ways to negotiate a solution, but it takes real concessions. And this, again, is where those outside parties come in. If the Assad regime is not willing to make concessions itself, its external backers need to put that pressure on it let it know it can't get away with zero compromise. I can talk to you for hours about, <laughs> about the future of Syria, and hopefully we'll have more occasions to do so, but we will have to close this podcast shortly. So one final question to you. It's not a question, actually. I, mm -hmm. I would like you to give a message to Turkish society, particularly, because I see that so many friends of mine even have forgotten the start of this, you may call it revolution, uprising, crisis. It's definitely a war now, but the roots of this war was different. And because of our domestic 
calculations, considerations, uh, concerns in, in Turkey. Many of the compatriot Turks have forgotten why Syrians are here in Turkey in the first place. This is precisely why it was a dream for me to see this book translated into Turkish. There is perhaps no other country in the world that I want to read Syrian stories to engage with the hopes and the dreams of ordinary Syrians than the public in Turkey. I would plead with Turks to look upon Syrian refugees not with resentment, that they are taking Turkish resources, that they are such large numbers on Turkish soil. I plead with them not to see them with fear about what kind of bad effects they can bring to Turkey. And I would also plead with them not to look upon Syrian refugees with pity of poor victims who have no agency, who have no talents, no skills, nothing to offer. I would beg Turks to look upon Syrian refugees with respect, that these are people who have suffered enormously. They have have hopes and dreams. They have taken enormous risks to fight for a better world. They did not want to leave their country. They were forced, many painfully so, and they still hold these aspirations for a better life for themselves, for their children. They want to live in dignity, with freedom, with opportunity. They want to contribute to society. They still want the best for their own countries and most dream of returning someday. And I think that if people were to sit down with displaced Syrians, it's very hard not to be inspired, feel that you want to do what you can in solidarity with these people, at the very least to have the minimum of human rights and, and opportunity. And if you're not able to sit down with a real Syrian human being, him or herself, and listen to their voices, then I hope this book will be a beginning entry point to that, that will introduce you to the voices of an array of people, will remind you of where they come from, who they are, what their hopes and dreams are, and that reading this book then can be a springboard to um, having more conversations with actual Syrians, with seeing them in a different light, treating them as, as human beings. I sincerely wish from the bottom of my heart that until the conditions are provided for Syrians in Turkey and around the world to return their homeland, I hope we will succeed in providing the care and hospitality for Syrians here in Turkey. And Wendy Perlman, thank you so much for being with me today on Zeitgeist Turkey. Thank you so much for writing this amazing book. We crossed a bridge and it trembled. Thank you once again for being with me. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I'm very grateful and look forward to meeting in person soon. Until next time on Zeitgeist Turkey, stay safe, stay healthy and take care. Goodbye.